Genesis chapter 8 is where we'll be this morning. So far in our series entitled Jehovah Unveiled, we've seen uh, these signs and plagues, these uh, wonders that God has performed to show both Israel and Egypt who truly is God. The gods of Egypt will not be able to stand against the one true God. By the way, it's true in our lives too. The gods that we would serve other than the one true God, we wouldn't call them that, but the idols that we would serve, they will not stand against the one true God, will they? The first sign was Moses and Aaron going into Pharaoh's presence and Aaron taking the staff of God and throwing it on the ground and it became a serpent. And what do the magicians do? Same thing. Only Aaron's staff, God's staff, the staff that sets Moses and Aaron apart from everywhere else. By the way, uh, that's why God had them use a staff was that to make it clear that this power was coming uh, not from uh, any sort of trickery, but this was uh, something that God was doing through them. God's staff swallowed up the other serpents. So now the magicians neither have a staff nor a snake to deal with. This first sign was a show of power, but was no real consequence. And so we think of it separately from the plagues, but yet it was that first sign. So the first plague, the second sign, the turning of the surface waters to the blood, was a great show of power and had some real consequence to the people, but not really to Pharaoh, because, well, he's Pharaoh. He has people to dig wells for him and to, to get the clean water. But that second plague, the invasion of the frog, this one Pharaoh takes personally because he's impacted personally. The frogs have become burdensome even in the palace. And yet, what do we see with Pharaoh? He is ultimately unpersuaded and refuses to let the people go. So as we continue along in these plagues and signs, uh, we'll, uh, we'll talk more about what's different about this particular sign and wonder uh, rather than repeating all the details that are actually the same with each one. Uh, but today we're going to see the burden of the plagues increase. What started out as just a show for Pharaoh, what started out as a nuisance for the people and not so much for Pharaoh, Pharaoh is now uh, in the thick of it, as it were, and it's getting worse. So I invite you to follow along with me. We're in Exodus chapter 8. We'll begin reading in verse 16. And today we'll take two plagues, the third and the fourth together. So follow along with me, if you would, in your copy of the scripture and hear the word of the Lord. Then the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth and there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not, so there were gnats on man and beast. And the magicians said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, 
and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Verse 20. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me. Or else if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses. And the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall happen. And the Lord did so. There came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh and into his servants' houses, Throughout all the land of Egypt, the land was ruined by the swarms of flies. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Go, sacrifice to your God within the land. But Moses said, It would not be right to do so, for the offerings we shall sacrifice to the Lord our God are an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice offerings abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? We must go three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he tells us. So Pharaoh said, I will let you go to sacrifice to the Lord your God in the, in the wilderness, only you must not go very far away. Plead for me. Then Moses said, Behold, I am going out from you, and I will plead with the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people tomorrow. Only let not Pharaoh cheat again by not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord. And the Lord did as Moses asked and removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants and from his people. Not one remained. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. Let's pray. Father, in our narrative today, we have Moses and Aaron who are your obedient servants. And we have Pharaoh who resists your word at every turn. Lord, help us to recognize the ways that we are resistant to obeying you. Help us to be submissive, humble servants. So Lord, I ask that you would guide my thoughts and words. Open our hearts. Help us to see how your word, how this Old Testament passage applies to us even today so that we might live for you. In Jesus' name, amen. I hate biting bugs. I don't mean I hate to bite out of a bug. I mean bugs that bite me, right? Okay, I hate biting bugs. They're awful. I know God created them, but because of the fall, they are now a nuisance and I hate them. Case in point, as the evenings get cooler and we want to have the windows open, this time of year we have those little teeny tiny bugs. Do you know what I'm talking about? They're either called noceums or uh, minute pirate bugs. I like that name myself. 
but there's these little teeny tiny bugs and they get on your skin and they hurt. And they are so small that they walk up to the screen of your house and pass through it as though it's an interstate highway. They are terrible (laughs) bugs. I had never been exposed to these bugs until I had moved to Harlan. I remember that first fall and we had the windows open and I walked into our bedroom and the wall was covered in these black little bugs. It was awful. I'm thankful that we live in a modern era and a vacuum cleaner works very well. So, no harm done. But I did learn a lesson. I do not open the windows when those bugs are out. Today's two plagues are bugs. And these plagues make anything that you and I have experienced seem very insignificant. But we can imagine, can't we? So put on that imagination today as we talk about gnats and flies and how awful this must have been. And as we go through this narrative, this story in the Old Testament that tells us a historical account of what happened with the nation of Israel and the nation of Egypt, we want to come to the conclusion that God wants us to fear him and not man. We are to fear God and not man. And sometimes that fear is legitimate terror. We should be in dread that God would ever send bugs into our own houses to dwell on us as happened to the Egyptians in these passages. What we see in the first plague of the day, the third plague, the gnats, verses 16 through 19. This is the entire record. There's very little here. This is part of the reason why I've combined the two into one sermon. Uh, I did look at uh, what does the internet tell me that pastors have done with this, and and some pastors would do uh, each plague by themselves. I'm like, man, how do you stretch? You got to stretch to do the gnats by themselves, so we're not doing that. Uh, we're, we're doing the third and fourth together. They are related, uh, but it's a very abbreviated, uh, there is no warning, and we talked about this before, that when we get to the third plague, there would be no warning. God would just simply tell Aaron and Moses what to do. They'd do it, and the plague would, uh, would ensue. Uh, so that's gonna happen this time. It's gonna happen in the, the next trio of plagues, the last one of the next trio, and as well of the ninth. We do not know a lot of details about here. We don't even know when Aaron struck the dust of the earth. Was he in the sight of Pharaoh and the officials when he did it? Uh, We don't know. It's possible, we don't know. What we do know is that the inconvenience of this plague is worse than the previous. And we see that going forward. Each plague gets worse. Gets worse, oh my goodness, I can't talk. So Aaron strikes the dust of the earth. It says the dust of the ground turns into gnats. Um, So all throughout the land of Egypt, that fine layer of dust becomes bugs. How much dust do you think is in Egypt? A lot. And God says that all of it became tiny bugs. The Hebrew word here is not a specific species of bugs, uh, but refers to any small biting bugs. So it may have been gnats. Your translation may say something else. Uh, it it doesn't, doesn't really matter. Just understand that this was a type of bug or a variety of bugs that are tiny and like to bite people. And so the magicians in verse 18 try to reproduce this. Again, I don't know why other than to show power, but they try to reproduce it. And this time they can't. 
Remember the first sign they could take their staff and turn it into a serpent. For the first plague, they were able to produce more blood from water. With the second plague, they were able to produce more frogs. But here, these fakers have become irrelevant. They are unable to reproduce this miracle, this sign from God. It says there were gnats on man and beast. It's one thing to have bugs around. It's another thing to have them on you. And that's what's happening here. And what is the conclusion of the magicians? Verse 19, it says, they recognize that this is the finger of God. Now, if you're looking at your, your Bible, that is not the all caps God. They're not, uh, they're not speaking Jehovah specifically. The actual Hebrew word is Elohim, which can refer to the one true God. Uh, they're not making a statement of belief in Jehovah in saying this. But what they're saying is, we recognize this as an act of God. Now, that's a phrase that we understand, isn't it? Acts of God are the things your insurance company won't cover, right? So that doesn't mean that our insurance companies are Christian in their beliefs, that they understand that there is the one true God and they worship him. It just means they recognize the power of God, whether or not they worship him or not. And and that's what the magicians are doing here. In fact, there's only one more mention in the book of Exodus of these magicians that comes in chapter 9, and, and even there, they are, they are powerless. They have nothing to do. So uh, they were able to help Pharaoh decide to not obey God in the beginning. Because when, when Moses and Aaron do a little trick, taking that staff and turning it into a snake, and his magicians can do the same thing, well, Moses and Aaron, they're not really as persuasive as they might have been even though Aaron's staff swallows up their snakes. Pharaoh kind of uses that as an excuse. Well, yes, you're powerful, but my guys are powerful too, so I don't have to listen to you. For the rest of these plagues, these magicians have nothing to to give Pharaoh any reason to deny God his request to let his people go. These magicians are fakers. And we should never fear fakers. Better stated, believer, we should fear God and not man. There are going to be people in your life who in one fashion or another are fakers. They will have some sort of authority or power as we saw in the magicians. They may have some sort of leverage over you. Uh, They may even appear to be godly in manner. But just because someone appears to be godly or someone appears to be successful as the magicians have in the past does not mean that God is pleased with them. Worldly measures of power and success are not God's measures. That's important for us to understand because it's real easy when you're struggling in life to look at someone who seems like they've got it all together, who's not a believer, and go, why can't... Why can't I be like that? The magicians call this plague evidence of the finger of God. And they are now proven powerless. They become completely irrelevant to the narrative. The fourth plague, beginning in verse 20, The fourth plague is announced just like the first one was. Remember the first plague? Uh, Moses and Aaron go out and meet Pharaoh at the Nile. 
Whatever his tradition was, it was to go out to the water in the morning and, and do something. We don't know if he was bathing, if he was worshiping, whatever it was. That was his, his normal routine. And Moses and Aaron go, are commanded of the Lord to go and present themselves to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water. This is verse 20. And tell, the, tell him once again, let my people go. Every time Moses and Aaron come and see Pharaoh, it's the same request, the same demand from God Almighty. By the way, God's word doesn't change. The demands he makes of us don't change. And they don't for Pharaoh either. Let my people go that they may serve me. If you won't, verse 21, I will send the swarm of flies. So God, again, gives him a direct warning. If you don't do this, then this will happen. But there's something different in this plague that has not been so before. Look at verse 22 with me. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there, and you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. In other words, when the water turned to blood, that was everywhere. When the frogs came out and invaded the houses, that was everywhere. The gnats, they were everywhere too. But these flies, now God is going to make a distinction. It's one thing to have a mass casualty that takes place over the entire nation. It's something else to have pockets of wherever the Israelites are. Now, they're primarily in Goshen, but wherever the Israelites are, there, there will not be these flies. The flies are coming, Pharaoh, and Pharaoh still hasn't learned his lesson. He should have learned from the frogs that when he gets a warning that God is actually going to do it. Remember, after the, the, or during the plague of the frogs, Pharaoh contacts Moses and Aaron and says, please, pray to your God. These frogs are terrible. Get them out of here. And what does Moses do? He says, yeah, I'll pray for you. And just as Moses prays for it, the frogs all recede. They die off. They're done. We're not given a specific timeline in this particular case. We don't know how long the gnats were there. We don't know how long it's been since the gnats died off. But certainly, Pharaoh remembers the gnats. Certainly he remembers how horrible they were. The huge part of this plague is, again, the separation of Israel from the Egyptians. God is going to keep his people separated. He does that for some of the future plagues as well, and in doing so, builds even a stronger case to Pharaoh and to all of Egypt that the God of Israel is the one true God. In the following verses, verses 24 through 29, we see Pharaoh negotiating, negotiating with Moses, trying to negotiate with God. That's what he's doing. So the Lord has taken these great swarms of flies. Uh, they're everywhere. They're all throughout the land of Egypt. In verse 24, it says that the land was ruined by the swarms of flies. In other words, it was just unbearable to be anywhere in the land of Egypt except where the Israelites were. So Pharaoh, again, just like with the plague of the frogs, seems to relent a little bit. He tells Moses and Aaron, go, sacrifice to your God. But look what he does here in verse 25. He says, within the land. He's not willing to obey God fully. He says, no, just worship your God, but just do it here. Why do you have to go? 
Why do you have to leave the land in order to do it? Moses responds correctly with two reasons why they are not going to take this suggestion from Pharaoh. The first reason is that uh, what we're going to do in worship to our God, your people are gonna hate and they're gonna kill us for it. That's in essence what he says. Now, I don't know if Moses knew all the details other than he knew he had to bring cattle along. He didn't know specifically what they had to do because uh, in an earlier passage, it said that they didn't know which cattle to bring, so they had to bring all of it, right? And so he doesn't have all the details, but he knows enough about Egypt. He grew up in the palace. He knows the culture of the Egyptians and how they would think this is really awful, this is gross. And so He just flat out says, we can't do this in the sight of the Egyptians. They'll kill us for it. In verse 27, he says, we must go three days journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he tells us. Man, that last little phrase, as he tells us, ought to just jump off off the page at you. Bright lights, flashing sounds, whatever it is to get your attention. When we worship God, we can only worship him in the way that he wants to be worshiped. We don't get to pick and choose how we worship him. We need to know what he wants. And we we don't have to guess. We read the word. We read the Bible. We can learn what he wants and then offer it to him. Because God is the one who determines how and where we worship, we must be here. We must gather together on Sunday to worship. Yes, there are times that God imposes circumstances on our lives that prevent us from getting here. You're sick, please stay home. (laughs) When it's really icy and it's very dangerous for you to get here, it's okay, right? There are times where God prevents you from worshiping the way that, that we should worship. But in general, under normal circumstances, we need to worship him the way he wants to be worshiped. Moses answers Pharaoh very well in saying that God is our priority in worship. Your priorities, Pharaoh, your priorities don't come into play. God's priorities are all that we are concerned about in worshiping him. And and this bigger part of the conversation is what we dare not miss. Moses is not going to give an inch regarding how they are to worship God. Worship is always about God. He is the customer. We are the servants giving him what he has asked for. Not the other way around. When people talk about how they choose a church, so often they talk about what they want. And I'm not saying preferences don't fall into play, but the reality is, what does God want? God wants true expositional biblical preaching. So that's very important in how you choose a church. Most of you shouldn't be church shopping, but I know at least one of you is. Hi, Chris. Expositional preaching is important. Having 
prayer as a congregation, that, that pastoral prayer that sometimes I pray well and sometimes I fumble through, I'm sorry. That's important. It's why we do it, even though praying in front of people is not always easy. Okay? Sharing burdens with one another is not easy, but that's what we do as part of our commitment to doing what God has asked us to do. And I mean, that's many, many sermon series that we could go down this path. But the whole point is we worship God the way God wants us to be worshiped. And Moses is not going to give even the slightest bit to Pharaoh. I find this little portion where Moses says to Pharaoh, don't cheat this time. I find it amusing. I also find it encouraging because what I see here is Moses is asserting his God-given authority over Pharaoh. Did you catch that? He's chiding Pharaoh. Pharaoh says, okay, I will let you go, but just don't go very far into the wilderness. And Moses says, okay, now you've told us before that we could go, but then you didn't let us go. No cheating this time. By the way, that's the verse 29. Only let not Pharaoh cheat again. You can imagine very easily a little bit of snark in Moses' voice, a little smirk on his face as he tells this to Pharaoh, perhaps a gleam in his eye. This may be a little bit of my own imagination, a little glorified imagination, but it's rooted in the reality that Moses already knows two things. He already knows that Pharaoh will cheat, that's his term. He already knows that Pharaoh is not going to do it because God told Moses that the only way that Pharaoh is going to relent is with a strong arm and with the death of, that's going to happen with the firstborns at the 10th plague. Okay? Moses knows that much. He knows that Pharaoh will let them go, but it's not yet. So with these two things in mind, he can say with a little bit of irony in his voice, now don't cheat this time, even though I know you're going to. Believers, if we fear God rather than man, we will work really hard to worship God on his terms. We will strive to worship him daily, moment by moment, seeking his glory in even the mundane or perhaps dirty tasks of life, right? Recognizing that he is Lord of every moment of our lives, not just an hour or so on Sunday. As the passage ends, the true power is made clear. Verse 30, so Moses went out from Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord. The Lord did as Moses asked and removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, his servants, his people, and not one remained. Can you imagine? Not one. To have your house full of flies, uh, whether these were the, the house flies that we know of or some other biting bug, this word again, like the gnats, was not quite as specific as we might think uh, the term flies mean, but just some biting bug. Maybe it was mosquitoes. Can you imagine? To have God not just reduce the plague, he removed it. 
not one fly remained. God is demonstrating his power. He's answering Moses' prayer. And yet again, Pharaoh is stubborn. He hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. There's this pattern emerging when it comes to Pharaoh's relationship with Jehovah, with the one true God. And this pattern is this. God gives Pharaoh a command, and because Pharaoh doesn't like the command, he disobeys. But the moment life gets super hard and he knows that that's from God, then he wants to turn to God. Then he at least says he wants to obey. Then he asks for prayer. We don't do that, do we? Just kind of, when life is easy, just stroll by the things that God might want us to do. But when life is hard, then we find ourselves on our knees. Then we find ourselves asking for help. We don't do that, do we? I'm afraid we might. In fact, that's a legitimate reason that we can point to as to why God brings difficulty into our lives. Because we just won't pray with the same fervency when life is easy. But this is the, the pattern that we see with Pharaoh. He's going to disobey God. He's going to seem to relent when it gets hard. He's going to ask for prayer. And God's going to show his power by answering the prayer. He didn't have to, right? I mean, these, these bugs weren't bothering the Israelites. God's people were in the clear. He could have let this go on and on and on until these bugs made their natural death. But no, God answered the prayer. A prayer that only benefited those who were rebelling against God. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we need to fear God in all the ways that that word means. To highly revere Him, but also to be afraid. To be afraid that if I should stop living for the Lord, how he might correct me, right? Fear of man is genuinely a huge problem for the people of God. We care what other people think. We care what other churches in town might be doing. We care what other individuals might be able to do that, that we're not because we're committed to the Lord, We might call it reputation. We might call it peer pressure. But the reality is anytime we are bending to the wishes of people rather than submitting to the will of God, we're sinning. And when it comes to the fear of man, we, I do it so easily. I know I do it. We care not enough about what God thinks. And sometimes we care too much about what man thinks. So take a moment, even now, before we observe the Lord's table, consider how you might have patterns of following man's priorities, man's logic, man's conclusions over God's. And I say pray because, honestly, we do it so easily that we don't realize that that's what's happening. And so it takes the Lord opening our eyes, helping us to understand our own motivation, to give us that clarity so that we might turn from following 
man's wisdom and pursue God with every bit of our being. So let's pray. Father, for all who have called on the name of the Lord, for all who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone as the means for their salvation, Lord, each one of us who have done that, we are your child. Your word tells us that very clearly. And as your child, you will never give up your parenthood. We will always be your child. But Father, even though we are your child, you have redeemed us, you have declared us righteous. Lord, we still sin. Father, forgive us. Forgive us for the times where we neglect your word, or or even worse, we read it, but we ignore it. Father, forgive us for failing to pray. Forgive us for turning to prayer only when life is hard, when catastrophe hits. Lord, help us to be people of your word and people of prayer. Father, forgive us for failing to prioritize others. The word tells us that as the body of Christ, we are to prioritize one another, to help each other, to spur one another on to growth and godliness. And Lord, it's, it's difficult enough to build the disciplines of the, of, of the Christian life in our own lives, let alone having to help someone else, and yet you've called us to do that. Forgive us when we fail to prioritize others. Father, forgive us for making excuses rather than submitting to what you've designed us to do for what you desire for us. Lord, help us to own our own weakness, own our own sin, recognize it and confess it. Turn from it so that we might be more like our Savior. Thank you, Father, for your promise that you forgive us. For anyone who here right now is is praying and confessing sin, we know that you forgive us and your forgiveness comes instantly because of the work of Jesus Christ. There's, There's no action or activity that we have to do to appease you because of the sins that we've committed for the the attitudes that we've carried. No, you forgive us because Jesus paid for every sin. Thank you for the restored relationship that comes when we recognize how we are failing you and we turn back to you. So Lord, we thank you for the way that you do work in us using even this very ancient text of, of supernatural events that we're not expecting to see repeated anytime soon. That you would use the book of Exodus to impact our lives just shows you how powerful the word is, how powerful your spirit is in wielding that word in our lives. So Lord, Grow us today. Change us. Help us to be people 
who live for you, who live with the hope of eternity in view each and every moment, regardless of how life goes. And help us to be those who are always loose with our tongues and sharing with others the greatness of our God. You are great, you are mighty, you are holy, you are wonderful. Help us to live like it in Jesus' name.